Hey everyone, great to be with you as we open God's Word together. Uh, as we begin uh, today, I just want to show you a few pictures. Uh, they're going to pop up on your screen and I want you to look to the person next to you as soon as you see them and just tell them what you see immediately. Yeah, ready? Uh, so here is picture one. What did you see? Did you see a face or did you see flowers? Here's the second picture. What did you see that time? Did you see Wolverine or did you see two Batman? Uh, one more for you, picture three, here we go. What did you see that time? Did you see a young woman or did you see an old man? Uh, they were all there in those pictures. Now, if you didn't see them, that's all good, but apparently it does say something about your personality. Um, but more to the point, as, as we begin a new series in the book of Job today, uh, these pictures show us that we all have areas of our life that are probably tied too tightly and fastened too well. Things that need undoing in our minds and in our beliefs. And that's why we've called this series in the book of Job, Undone. Because as we look and as we read through this book, uh, it does exactly that. Over the next couple of months, as we wrestle with all that uh, Job wrestles with, it's, it's very likely that there are things about what we believe about God, what we know about ourselves and how we see the world around us that just might need to be undone. I believe we're going to see that even just in the first two chapters of this book. And so I hope you're keeping your Bibles open at Job chapter 1 and 2 so you can refer to it as we go. And if you're taking notes, and there are three broad points that we're going to be covering today. Uh, the first point is four compass points. The second point is two ideas that need undoing. And the third point is two takeaways. Yeah, so uh, four compass points, two ideas that need undoing, and three, uh, sorry, point three, two takeaways. Uh, but I'm going to pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, be with us as we uh, read uh, through this book. Challenge us, help us to see things that might need undoing. Help us to learn and hear you speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin at our first point, four compass points, four compass points. Um, if you flick through your papal Bible through the book of Job, you're going to see that this book, it's a pretty long book. Uh, there are 42 chapters to a book where so much of the action happens in just the first two chapters, and then at the last few chapters, at the very end. Uh, most of the book is made up of confusing conversations between Job and the people who come to meet with him. And so understandably, most people read the book of Job how I sometimes watch an episode of MasterChef, right? You, you, you just read the beginning, you watch the beginning, and then you skip to the end to see what happens. But there's a reason why the book is as long as it is. And it's because there is so much to learn from the book of Job in the middle of it as well. Like a MasterChef episode, so much happens in the middle to help make better sense of the book as a whole. And that's why we've dedicated two months to this. Because we can't do just the beginning and end. There's too much that we miss. Yes, the middle is a complex terrain. Yes, the middle of this book uh, is confusing because there's just opinion after opinion after opinion. But the first two chapters of the book, I think, provide us four reference points to navigate through that complex terrain. Right? Four reference points that we need to keep remembering as we deep dive into all the poetry and dialogue that are in the middle bit so that we don't get lost as we wade further in. 
Uh, here's a tip for you. It, it might be even worth underlining some of the verses that we're going to mention so that you uh, remember these four reference points as we read through the book of Job in our CGs and as we look at it on Sunday. So what are the four points? You know, what are the four compass points we're going to be looking at? Well, the first compass point is Job's wisdom and blamelessness. The second is Satan's limit. Uh, the third is God's supremacy. And the fourth is Job's isolation. Uh, so we're going to go through them now, uh, beginning with Job's wisdom and blamelessness. Job's wisdom and blamelessness. The, the narrator begins in Job 1, uh, chapter 1, by telling us just how blameless Job is, right? He, he was blameless, we see, upright, he feared God and shunned evil. Now, this is an incredible description of this man. No other person in all of the Old Testament is described this way. Right? Being wise and blameless, it doesn't mean he's perfect, but he's a man of tremendous integrity. He's not a hypocrite. He's godly inside and out. He lives reverently and in awe of God. His life is shaped by repentance. He lives a life of wisdom before the Lord. Job um, is, is the classical wise man of the Bible, right? And you get these portraits of, of the wise man throughout the wisdom literature of the Bible uh, on what a wise man looks like or a wise person looks like. Job embodies that picture and because and Job is so wise, uh, in more cases than not, life is meant to go pretty well for the wise person, which is why we get all the details of just how wealthy Job is. We see um, Job has a big family. He's got seven sons. That's a great number in the Bible. He's got 10 total children, three daughters as well. That's another great number. We see his possessions also have nice round numbers, 10,000 sheep and camels, 1,000 oxen and donkeys. All these things we're meant to see as blessings from God because he's been wise. And so this massive asset portfolio that we see in verses 2 to 3 in chapter 1 are meant to prove to us that his character in verse 1 is true that he is wise. And, and just to prove just how great of a man he is, we're told that Job is the greatest man among all the people of the East. And it isn't just the narrator that thinks this way about Job. God thinks of Job this way as well. I mean, how do we know that? Well, uh, God describes Job the exact same way as the narrator. In both the conversation God has with Satan, uh, in one, chapter 1, verse 8, and again in chapter 2, verse 3, God says there is no one on earth like Job. That Job is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. That sounds pretty familiar. It's identical to chapter 1, verse 1. And we even see that God calls Job his servant. Right? He calls him his servant. Now, servant doesn't mean a slave. Being a servant of God is a title of honor, actually. Right? Moses is called God's servant. Many of the prophets are God's servants. He calls important people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob his servants. God views Job very highly. This is a man who was a great believer. The narrator thinks so. More importantly, God thinks so too. And so even after two lots of agonizing trials that we see Job goes through, we're told that Job doesn't sin. Uh, in verse 22 of chapter 1, we see that in all this, God didn't sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And then uh, in verse 10 of chapter 2, we see in all this, Job did not sin in what he said, right? Even after everything he goes through, his lips still praise God. He refuses to curse him. He's filled with grief, yes, but he falls on his knees still in worship. And so this is a really important compass point because as we read through the rest of the book, 
it's going to become harder and harder to believe that Job really is blameless and wise. Right? There are going to be moments where we're, we're going to be gravely concerned with the things that come out of Job's mouth. In some cases, we might actually agree with what his friends say to him. But at the end of the book, it's important that we remember that God commends Job, not his friends. To God, Job remains wise. To God, Job remains blameless. To God, Job is ultimately in the right and his friends are in the wrong. And so we need to remember this compass point, that Job is wise and blameless. Now, to save time, as we go to the next compass point, we're, we're going to deal with the next two points of the compass at the same time, because um, they're really unpacked together in the same parts of the story. Yeah? So we're going to look at Satan's limit and God's supremacy, those two compass points together. Satan's limit and God's supremacy. Uh, let's take a look at what happens in the next part um, of uh, the prologue, yeah, uh, what happens next. Now, there's a lot that happens. Um, the story kind of jumps between scenes in heaven and on earth, um, and, and again, and, and so um, instead of um, spending all our time looking through everything that happens, we're going to spend our time focusing on what goes on in heaven uh, rather than on earth, mostly because the stuff that happens on earth, it's, it's so dramatic, it's probably just best to read it, right? Um, but um, looking at the scenes from heaven, from verse 6 of chapter 1, we are invited to be like flies on the wall of this heavenly cabinet meeting on a very significant day. Uh, it's the day that Job is spoken of in this council, in this heavenly council. And as we see this council, as we see, hear what's going on, it's clear who's in charge. God's in charge. And the angels come to present themselves before him. And, and there is one other character there named uh, Satan, or from the original, the Satan, right? Because Satan isn't the first name. It, it it just describes a specific role, uh, the role to accuse. And from the things that uh, Satan says, the Satan does his accusing role extremely well. Um, but before we get to his accusing, we see that Satan is an outs outsider here, isn't he? He's an outsider here. Um, he shows no respect to God. He doesn't address him as Lord. He's forward. He's insulting. He's irreverent in his tone. It's pretty clear he doesn't belong like the others as a respectful servant of God. But he has a role to play at this cabinet meeting. And so God invites the Satan to speak and accuse his servant, Job. See, what is the Satan's role at this meeting? His role is probably to identify the people on earth who seem godly, not to applaud them for their godliness, but to accuse them for it. And so he's going back and forth uh, throughout the world to work out whose faith he can potentially fault. Right? In other words, the Satan, he's roaming the earth in order that he can say that there's nobody, no one that genuinely worships God. That there is no one that genuinely gives God the time of day because he's God. They only give him the time of the day, the Satan thinks, because they just want the benefits that he brings. And so the Satan is pretty much looking and, and saying, look, God, Nobody's godly because they want to honor you. The only reason why they go to church, why they go to prayer meetings, why they serve, it's to gain something from you. Right? See, God, they've pretty much worked out that if they honor you, chances are they'll be better off for it. They'll get wealthier. They'll feel better about themselves. They'll experience joy and happiness and fulfillment. Their bank balance will grow. Their family will be healthy. 
their life will be enjoyable, their jobs, they're going to be secure. I mean, who wouldn't want to be godly if that's the life that they get? In other words, the Satan is pointing the finger at God, daring him. If you, God, were to take those things away, those benefits, your people will stop loving you. Because they're just using you. They don't truly love you. No, nobody wants you to be their God. Job doesn't truly love you. Remove that hedge around him and his household. Take that away and he's going to curse you. And as we look in chapter 2, even after Job responds well and proves uh, the initial accusations wrong after that first big lot of trial, said it again, he doubles down. He says, you know, that first trial, that just wasn't severe enough. Strike his health next. Strike him. Then he'll curse you. Right? See, that's the Satan's role. That's his role. He's the accuser. Now, friends, I just want to pause for a sec because we know somewhat how hurtful this type of thinking is, right? Maybe you've had someone who once were really friendly towards you. Maybe they really adored and appreciated you. But then they stopped all of a sudden because you stopped being useful to them. Perhaps you opened doors for them in their career. Or you gave them a skill that you have. Or um, maybe it was even your love that you gave them. But the moment you were not useful, they just tossed you aside. Right? Maybe you know how that feels. It hurts when you're used like that. I wonder, Southwest, does Satan have his finger on the pulse with how you approach God? I wonder, have you wrestled with whether you treat God that same way? I think for many of us, this is like an intellectual question, right? It's like an armchair question. You're, you're coming to this book of Job, you know, mostly theoretically, because life is going pretty well. And for those of you in that situation, and I'd, I'd include myself in that, we need to be seriously asking the question, what happens when the benefits of being in relationship with God, what happens when that's taken away? Because it will happen some way or another. Right? At that point, will the Satan's accusation of Job be true for us? Will our relationship with him hold firm when our expectations of God no longer hold? Right? For us, in that armchair discussion, we need to wrestle with this inevitability because it's not going to remain hypothetical forever. But I also want to say that there are others of you, as we come to Job, that this isn't some armchair discussion. It's far more like a wheelchair discussion. Maybe as you come to Job, you're enduring great difficulties. You're going through immense pain, short or long term, in, in, in any form. And so wrestling with whether Satan's accusation is right is really live ammunition for you. It, it's being tested at this very moment, perhaps. If you're in that place, we hope that being in this book for the next couple of months will be ultimately a tremendous blessing for you. But just as importantly, please reach out to any of the pastors. Please reach out to any of the elders. We love to speak, pray, and walk with you. But coming back to the book, with all those accusations that Satan is pointing and daring God, how does God respond? How does he respond? Well, shockingly, Surprisingly, God not only allows these tests, if you look closely, what does He do? He actually initiates those tests, both times. Right? He's the one who first mentions Job. Yes, He sets limits. Yes, 
he, he does that, but he also initiates. He allows all these disasters to fall on his servant. And I'm sure that raises all sorts of uncomfortable questions. And I promise we'll address some of those later. But for now, let's summarize these uh, two compass points that we've been talking about. Because we're in a privileged position. Because we see what Job can't, right? We see what is invisible to Job. I mean, even at the end of the book, Job still doesn't know what's happened. Job still doesn't know that God's talked with Satan. But because we get to be flies on the wall, we see that God is still supreme. We, we might need to grapple with the why questions still, but we can read that God is clearly in charge. How do we see that? Well, Satan, what does he do? He has to present himself to God, right? He's got to give almost like status reports to God. Uh, Satan also, he can't even speak until God first speaks to him. He can't bully God. It's not like there's a tug of war for who's in charge going on here. Satan can't even move a single inch beyond what God allows him to do. We see that, and God sets limits for what Satan is allowed to do. And he can't cross them as much as he wants to destroy Job. To borrow um, the reformer Luther's famous phrase, Satan is God's Satan. Now, we need to remember this because after these two chapters, we, we hear nothing more of Satan. And we don't hear from God till chapter 38. And, and so all the comments, all the conversations his friends make that Job deserves what happens to him, that, that God has abandoned him, that he, he is being punished for something and that he needs to repent, those things just aren't the truth. Satan's accusations against Job are not proven true. God, God is not somehow on the back foot caught off guard. Right? Satan has limits. God is supreme. Those are the second and third compass points. Now, the fourth compass point we're going to look at is Job's isolation. Yeah, Job's isolation. At the end of the trials, where is Job? Where do we see him? He's sitting among the ashes, which is like a burning dump outside of town. Right? He's there with the rubbish and all the rotting animal carcasses, and he is utterly alone. The only comfort he receives is from a piece of broken pottery that he's just scraping his sores on his body with. Right? Within a single day, Job, he goes from one of the greatest and wealthiest men, the greatest and wealthiest man in the East, to absolute poverty. Within a single day, he goes from a full household to lose all 10 of his children. He experiences two natural disasters and two acts of terrorism against him. And he can barely breathe before he finds out about the next tragedy. And now his body and his health are gone as well. And to make matters worse, uh, to make him feel even more alone, after Satan strikes his flesh and his bones with those sores, we now see Job's wife. We meet her. Job's wife, who's meant to be the bone of his bones and the flesh of his flesh. And she rebukes him. She actually tempts Job to curse God. Exactly what Satan wants Job to do. And Job's male friends do no better, right? Now we meet, at the end of chapter 2, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And while they come with great intentions, right? They're coming all together. They want to sympathize with him, we see. They want to comfort him, we see. From the moment that they see Job covered in sores, sitting in that dump, everything they do from then on isolates Job even more. Right? What do they do? They sprinkle dust on their head, right? Dust is a symbol of death. 
And so they, they see Job as like someone drowning in quicksand in the desert and, and it's now beyond their reach, can't get him anymore. Then we see that they stay silent for a full week and they don't say a single word to Job. Right? I've, I've heard uh, this silence treatment preached elsewhere as a wonderful gift that the friends give to Job. But seven days and seven nights of silence just seems really excessive and, and actually really cruel, doesn't it? I mean, silence that long would be deafening especially to those who want comfort. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, we actually say that the people who observe a seven-day silence, they only do it to mourn someone who has already died. Right? So Joseph, for example, does it after his father passes away. And so the seven days of silence that his friends do is significant, right? Before their friends even open their mouths, what, they, what are they doing? They're mourning for Job like he's already a corpse. They're mourning as if he's already dead. One writer writes that it's like they're sitting there with the coffin already open for Job to climb in. Friends, as we come to the rest of the book, we see Job is always with other people. He's talking with them. He's surrounded by other people. But the reality is Job feels more and more alone. The only person he can turn to is God. And so we see that he speaks to God, condemns him, challenges him, prays, mourns, cries out to him time and time again. Because all his present company seems to do is to dig a grave for him. And so to summarize, as we navigate the complex terrain of all the book of Job, we need our compass points. Right? We need to remember that Job is wise and blameless, that Satan has limits, that God is supreme still. And we need to remember that Job is utterly alone. Let's now move on to our second point. Right? Two ideas that need undoing. Two ideas that need undoing. Because, you know, chances are, if you read this story deeply, there are parts of these two chapters that, that will unsettle us. Right? There are some ideas that might need undoing or loosening in our minds and in our beliefs. And we're going to tackle two ideas that I think needs undoing and what that means for us right so the first one is our beliefs about suffering and then we're going to look at our beliefs about worship yeah look going to look at our beliefs about suffering and then our beliefs about worship let's look at our beliefs about suffering we'll begin here because suffering probably comes to mind when it comes to the book of job right um, but suffering actually isn't the focus of the book if you're wanting to find out why there is suffering in the world if you're wanting to find out what causes it, why, why suffering may be happening to you yourself, the book of Job doesn't actually give any clear answers. Even what God says at the very end of the book doesn't really answer those questions either. It's not really why the book was written. Right? But having said that, I think there are a couple of connected things we can safely say when thinking about suffering in the book of Job. I think we can say that there is, there is a place of innocent suffering and that it's possible to never discover why we suffer. Yeah, they're connected. But let's first look at the place of innocent suffering, the place of innocent suffering. Like we've already said, we know from these first two chapters that Job is innocent. Right? What he's experiencing, it's undeserved. Even God agrees with that statement. Right? Job's suffering isn't any general suffering. There's probably a better way to, to word it, but it really is innocent suffering, isn't it? Now, that's fine if all we're doing is thinking about that concept, innocent suffering. 
But when it comes to real life, the fact that there is innocent suffering, that's an unsettling idea, isn't it? Just on Friday, I was told that one of um, the most influential lecturers that I had at Bible College, uh, he will begin leukemia for Hodgkin's lymphoma this coming Wednesday. He's a young guy. He's got primary school age children. He's a faithful servant of the Lord, doing incredible things to further God's kingdom with a mind that God has given him, uh, with his pastoral heart, with, and with a real love for God's word. He's a beloved member of the faculty there, and he's regularly asked to preach all over the place. And now for him, everything is up in the air for him and his family. And the immediate response that went through my mind as I saw this was, well, why, why God? There are people out there, wicked people, doing wicked things. And this humble servant of yours now has this cancer destroying his body? The book of Job tells us that part of the answer to that why is that innocent suffering exists. Now, that doesn't mean that all suffering is innocent suffering. Um, There are particular sufferings that are related directly to things, right? Someone who is suffering um, from family breakdown, for example, because they've committed adultery, that, that's not innocent suffering, right? But the book of Job challenges and undoes our thinking by saying, yes, Jesus follower, there is innocent suffering. And it happens to the blameless as well. Suffering doesn't always have to wake someone up from, from some you know, mistaken path or, 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 or to bring someone back from wandering away. In a fallen world, the wise and the blameless are not immune to suffering. Right? The typical religious answer that you get uh, is to suffering is that, you know, they just haven't done enough. Maybe they haven't believed enough. Or maybe they've done wrong someplace, somewhere in their life. And, and now this is almost like karma coming back around to get them. The book of Job firmly says no to that idea. There is such a thing as innocent suffering. I wonder what you make of that. But there's also another unsettling idea about innocent suffering, about innocent sufferers. And it's this, that it's possible for them to never discover why it happens, at least in this life. They might never find out why in this life. But chances are those who suffer innocently like Job does, they never find out the reasons why they endure what they have to endure. And that's an uncomfortable thought, isn't it? People respond differently to that, that reality. You know, skeptics might say, um, well, you know, that just proves there's no God. If your suffering has no rhyme or reason, that just proves that, you know, life is just one big mess, one big random thing, and there's no purpose to it. You just have to create your own purpose. Uh, there are believers that might say, well, if God just showed me why, if God just told me what he's doing in my life through this suffering, I could handle it better. It would be more bearable. And yet the book of Job, it suggests a different way for the believer. And again, it's an unsettling one. In that innocent suffering, Job tells us that we're meant to learn to live with it, how to live with it. We're meant to learn to live with the loss, all while holding on to God. See, friends, Job never learns about the conversation God has with Satan. He never discovers why he suffers as severely as he does. And yet, if we skip to the end of the book for just a moment, to chapter 42, 
still Job is able to say, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Hear that? And Job declares this before God restores so much of what he's lost. See, what does that mean? It means that Job learns to live with that loss. Job learns to work out how to live with it, all while never letting go of God. How is that idea sitting with you? For me, the fact that this is where the book invites us, it gnaws at me. It gnaws at my sensibilities. The book of Job opens the door that we might suffer innocently as believers. It opens the door that we might never discover why we do while we're on this earth. And yet it tells us that it is entirely possible as we slowly plod in a Godward direction, like Job does from chapter 3 to the end of the book, that we too can respond the way Job does. Perhaps our idea of suffering needs to be undone and loosened to what the book of Job encourages us to embrace. That's suffering. Let's turn now to our beliefs about worship uh, that might need to be undone. Our beliefs about worship. Uh, because I want to say that if suffering isn't the focus of this book, worship is. Yeah, Worship is. This book is all about God getting the glory. It's about worshipping God rightly. I have no doubt that if you looked at this passage in your CGs, uh, that you would have wrestled with why God allows Satan to rule in Job's life. I'm sure of it. We saw earlier, didn't we, that God initiates this conversation, that, that He permits Satan to run over everything near and dear to Job. And He does it twice. I mean, if it were us writing this story, surely we would have, you know, made God say to Satan after the first trial, perhaps, look, that's enough. You accused him that he would curse me if, if all I had given him is taken away, right? He's now bankrupt. He's in ruin. He's lost his entire family. Enough's enough. Stop. But what does God do? Well, God disagrees with that. And God permits it again. Why? Well, we're not given a complete explanation. But remember the heart of Satan's accusation is that Job's only in it for what he can gain, not because of God himself. And so it must be the case, and stay with me because this is really important, that at least part of why God permits Job to suffer as much as he does is because God deeply cares that he is worshipped rightly. God cares deeply that he is worshipped rightly. And he cares so deeply that it trumps anything or anyone Job has. Which means God cares so deeply that He is worshipped rightly that it trumps anything or anyone you or I have. And it matters deeply to Him that we worship Him rightly. Now, a question that comes from that, well, does that make God self-centered? It sure sounds like it. Well, the answer the Bible gives us is no. I mean, if we demanded that from other people, yeah, that'd be super inappropriate, right? But it's appropriate and entirely right that God does. The picture the Bible paints is, is almost like if we were standing in a boat in front of the Niagara Falls and we're seeing the power of the water just gushing down and all we're thinking about in the moment is how awesome we are. Right? There's something deeply wrong with us if we thought that. And yet the glory of the Niagara Falls is only the faintest of echoes to the glory of God. To God, to quote one writer, the universe has gone terribly awry when He is not given the ultimate glory. See, 
God cares deeply that we honor Him because He's God. God. God cares deeply that we love Him because He's God. God cares deeply that we give Him the glory because He alone is worthy of that glory. And anything less, oh, it's insufficient. And the book of Job tells us that God desires, even above our comfort and other things that bring us joy, that that's what God cares about. Uncomfortably, the book of Job tells us that He might even take those very things away from us so that we grow to worship Him for who He is. Now, I want you to know that even as I said, just said all of that, I, I'm, I'm squirming on the inside as I say that. Maybe you are too. But that's really uncomfortable. But perhaps our ideas about worshipping and God's glory also needs to be undone. It needs to be loosened. Because God cares about His glory and worshipping Him rightly at a level that we just don't think about. And perhaps that's exactly why God's given us this book of Job. Because while Job does worship God rightly, immediately after those two trials, we're going to see that Job ultimately goes on a journey that will deeply refine his worship of God. Now, so much more could be said. Uh, we just can't because of time, but please reach out if you'd like to speak further. But I think it's important that while we are unsettled, yeah, while we're unsettled, that we don't leave God's word too, too shaken up about God. though. Yeah? And so with that in mind, I want to give you two brief takeaways, two brief takeaways. Firstly, there are some of you that need to hear that it's okay, that it's even right, that God doesn't agree with everything we want Him to agree with. Yeah, I mean, this is God we're talking about. God is far more like a wild lion than any pet we can tame. Um, Timothy Keller, a pastor and writer in New York, who, by the way, is also going through cancer treatment at the moment, he puts it like this. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not some figment of your imagination. You hear that? Friends, there is something very right if the image of God in our minds is sometimes shaken by Him. Because we don't make God in our likeness. We grow to be shaped more in His likeness. And so the first takeaway is that would God enable us not to confuse those two? The second takeaway um, for us is that while it is confronting, and it is confronting, that God allows Satan to assault Job the way that he does, centuries later, God would allow Satan once again to assault yet another innocent sufferer, the ultimate Job, Jesus Christ. See, when Job suffered, he was only relatively innocent. Yes, he was wise. Yes, he was blameless. Yes, he didn't deserve it. But he certainly wasn't perfect. When Jesus suffered, he suffered as the perfect man, the absolute innocent sufferer. When Job felt that he was abandoned by God, ultimately he wasn't. We see that God limits Satan from taking his life. And yet those limits are removed for Jesus, aren't they? He was actually abandoned. He was actually forsaken by the Father on the cross and left to die. See, Jesus Christ is the only true person to have ever loved God for himself and, and not for the benefits. Jesus is obedient to the Father's will. Right? He leaves the benefits, the glories of heaven. He's obedient to die a death on a wooden cross. 
And Jesus is the only person in the history of mankind that God says, even if you obey me fully, actually because you obey me fully, I will turn my back on you and separate from you. And to that, Jesus says, yes. See, though it might be concerning and confronting that God invites the innocent sufferer, that he invites us to love him for who he is, even at the expense of our lesser comforts and joys. We need to remember that he doesn't exclude himself from that equation. Yeah, God experiences innocent suffering. God first loved us for who we are at the expense of his comfort and his joy. Jesus, God in the flesh, willingly loves us just for ourselves. And so friends, would Christ's love compel us? to grow our willingness to do the same for him. Amen. Uh, for those of you who have time to respond um, to, to, to the sermon uh, in your groups, I've just got a discussion question on the screen. Uh, let me read it out for us. Uh, how has God challenged you today? How might you direct that to him in prayer? Um, and why don't you invite others to pray those things with you? God bless. Uh, see you soon.